Hey there, it's Laura Flynn from Making Contact. Did you know our listeners are the ones responsible for making this show happen every week? We provide the show for free to radio stations because we think it's important to creating dialogue and impacting public discussions and policies. Right now, more than 100 stations in the U.S. carry us. If you like what you hear, go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a tax-deductible donation to support our work. That's radioproject.org. Now for this week's show. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact. You think Oakland, California is a city of crime. It only takes a second to pop the trunk. And just like that, you know it's real. Yeah, I am from here. Um, from Oakland, five generations of my family have been born and raised in Oakland. So it's a city that I'm absolutely proud of, and uh, my family still lives here. I'm being up in California every day of my life. I grew up on Too Short, 10 years old, I was listening to that stuff, and it did, it did influence me, and it did, it influenced the way I thought, and it influenced the way I acted, because you want to be cool when you're a kid, it's all about being cool. When I was in high school, I, I, I was on the whole F the police bandwagon, even though I had never had any negative experiences with the police, but it was just the popular culture uh, to, to say, hey, F the police, you know. Based on my my need to be cool, I started going down a path when I was a young man that uh, might have led me to encountering the police negatively, being arrested, doing really stupid stuff as a kid for the sake of looking cool. How are you? All right, yourself? Doing well, thank you. I'm the cop for this school. Okay, how you doing? I'm well. I'm Mr. Hall, Roger Hall. I'm you Charles are... Stone. Great cop name, if you don't mind me saying. Thank you. I, I appreciate <laughs> yeah. that, man. I appreciate it. it, it it's helped me out. It's got, <laughs> gotten some attention. Well, this here is uh, 82nd, and MacArthur was we're right there. there. So we're up on Nay Street, which is uh, which is where, where my school is at, where Parker Elementary is. Um, And I'll tell you this, the reason for my presence at this school is because the neighborhood is so infested with crime. And it's just unfortunate, but, you know, that the entire block where my uh, where my elementary school is located has historically been been a problem. Bob Smurf. Hey, how's it doing? Where you been at? Yo, where you been? I've been hiding. Say what? They closed school down Friday. Friday and Monday. There's been, you know, multiple people shot. You know, there's drive-by shootings uh, more often than we'd care for. You know, major narcotics activity out of these apartments up here. Directly across from our elementary school. And where you have drug dealing and drug activity and narcotics activity, you have the potential for violence. They closed it down for a shooting? 
Fifteen years ago, Charles Stone became a police officer in the city of Oakland. The neighborhood he's currently assigned to isn't the area he grew up in, but it's still part of his hometown turf. I'm off all Fridays. I don't work any Fridays. I'm out here to do my best to try to help folks and maybe change the impression. So if that dude didn't have a good impression of the Oakland Police Department before he met me, maybe he does now. I love you. I'm going to prove it. It's, it's kind of nice to be from here because I have a certain amount of pride in, in being a police officer in the city that I'm from and the city that my family is from. Only 9% of Oakland's police officers live in Oakland. That's pretty low, but it's not an anomaly. Around the country, other cities, big and small, face the same challenges. In Miami, 7% of the city's police live within the city limits. In Minneapolis and Ferguson, Missouri, it's around 6%. How do you do community policing with people who don't live in the community? John Penny is a criminologist at Southern University at New Orleans, but he's not just an academic. He spent 16 years as a juvenile probation and parole officer, a job that took him to virtually every corner of the city he still calls home. Normally, under normal circumstances, you protect the things that you, uh, uh, you would protect it better if you have to live in it. If you don't, then it may become just a job to you. Uh, if you live outside the city, your loyalty and uh, dedication or commitment might not be as great. Residency requirements, rules that required cops to live in the city they patrolled, were common around the turn of the 20th century. But they weren't originally designed to recruit dedicated cops. Descendant from English law, the requirements were a way for politicians to maintain power by doling out jobs to people living in their districts. In fact, police reformers were against the requirements because of the nepotism and corruption involved. But things turned around during the civil rights era, and residency requirements became a racial and economic issue. Andrew Flowers is the quantitative editor of 538.com, a data-driven news site. That's the site run by election prediction guru Nate Silver. These residency requirement ideas were instituted in the 1970s and the 1960s out of like an, a, an environment of you know white flight, the middle class leaving to the suburbs. Suddenly, the idea of mostly white police officers patrolling inner-city neighborhoods of color during the day then escaping to their suburban communities at night, didn't sound so great. And the motivations behind these residency requirement ideas seem sensible, right? You know, you want to keep tax money in the city. You want to improve the resident police relations. Local governments in Chicago, Denver, and dozens of other cities have laws requiring their officers to live within city limits. Some of those laws include other emergency responders like firefighters, citing the notion that they need to live close by in case of an emergency. Other requirements, like Boston's, cover all local government employees. In practically every case, there's been resistance from law enforcement agents, who say these residency rules restrict their freedom of movement. In 1976, a Philadelphia firefighter took the issue all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Despite the fire department's residency requirement, he wanted to move out of town. But he lost the case and lost his job. The court rejected the argument that anyone had a constitutional right to be employed by any particular city. 
the Fraternal Order of Police, or FOP, has been a consistent opponent of residency requirements. Retired Nashville, Tennessee Police Commander Bob Nash worked with the local and national FOP. You don't have to live in Nashville. You just don't have to be a policeman here in Nashville is kind of the philosophy of the, of the courts. Um, so um, it's, it's really not uh, an issue that you can take to court uh, and be successful. It's really a political issue. In 1994, Nashville City Council voted to get rid of its residency requirement. Nash says that campaign succeeded by arguing that a larger geographic area equals a larger talent pool to hire officers from. Say in, in the case of Nashville, if you lived in a bedroom community like Franklin or Brentwood or Mount Juliet, uh, there's some very, very good candidates there for the job. Um, you know, uh, oftentimes people would get married, a wife or a husband might have property already or a home already outside the county, so that means you're going to end up having to move. Uh, so people really wanted the freedom to move where they uh, wished and still be employed here. When Hurricane Katrina and the floods that followed ravaged New Orleans, throngs of police and other first responders left the city, and there was a shortage of housing. So the city suspended its residency requirement. In the decades since, there's been difficulty generating a pool of qualified applicants from within city limits. So in 2014, the requirement was removed altogether. We were, as they say, bleeding blue. Even police reform activists like Yvette Theory didn't fight very hard to keep New Orleans law on the books. I mean, I understand from their perspective that they were just trying to, you know, get more recruits or whatever. But being a native and someone who grew up in this city, I think residency is very important to the police department. Theory says there's already a level of wariness about police in New Orleans. Her mentally ill brother-in-law ended up dead after a 911 call. Her son has been stopped by the police several times for what she says was driving while black. We did a survey back in 2007 where overwhelmingly people said they didn't trust the police. That hasn't changed. People still don't trust the police. And now you're bringing people outside the community and, and putting badges on them. So where, you know, how the trust level going to go up when you, you know, you're allowing outsiders to come in and police other people's community with no investment. We'll be right back. Fire! You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. There are many examples of people who you would not want to be a police officer. Everybody can think of somebody and say, would you want that guy to be a police officer? And their, their, their reaction is oftentimes an emotional one. Hell no! Right? Why is that? Because the position of police officer is one of great responsibility and, and, and trust and easily manipulated and abused if you have the wrong people doing the job. Hey, this is my good friend. Guess what I have, my friend? 
Guess what I have? Nice. This is my pal Jeff. How's it going? I have I have what you need, bro. Okay. Want to do that? Sure. Let's do it. Because who knows when the next time, the next opportunity we'll get. But let me. I have half of what you need, though. I. I it's all good. You take these. If you're a little confused right now, so am I. Officer Stone is getting out of his car to sell his friend something out of the trunk of his police cruiser. We're in the parking lot of a gas station right by a freeway on-ramp. I don't even know how much, how many did you get? How many boxes did you get? Yep, you got it. Three, three, six and this deal being made is for boxes of Girl Scout cookies. I love you, man. Thank you, too. Appreciate your support, man. This is from Avea. Okay. I got it. All right, brother. Turns out Officer Stone helped deliver a baby in this parking lot a few years back. His wife has known the gas station owner for decades. These are hometown community connections that make locally rooted officers seem so desirable. But this conversation about police loyalty to a community in Oakland and in New Orleans and in Ferguson, Missouri, is not just about geography, it's about race. Most urban communities are patrolled by predominantly white police officers. So the perception is that police officers, particularly white police officers, don't have a vested interest or concern about people in the communities where they patrol. Terrence Allen is assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin in the School of Social Work. He says the integration of police departments, which began in the 1960s, seems to have brought more psychological than statistical benefits. When you ask black residents about their treatment from from black police officers, they generally say black police officers don't treat them any better than white police officers. Then when you ask them, who would you rather patrol in your neighborhood? Well, they would rather have black police officers patrol than white police officers because, you know, it's like the, looking at the best of two evils, so to speak. Oakland, like many American cities, has a police force with a disproportionate number of white officers who patrol urban communities of color during the day, then go home to the suburbs at night. Yes, sir. So this guy that's been graffiti in our building, I done walked all the way from West Grand. I've been following him, trying to wave down the police while he was still on my side. I got pictures of him. And it's the first time he's spent a lot of money covering our building up. What's he wearing? All the time. He's wearing a black backpack, a black coat, a ball cap. It might be black, too. Uh, he's a Caucasian. Uh, he has the full beard, and he has glasses on. Let me, let me see if I can get somebody who can come by. Okay? Okay. See if we can't find this dude. That would bother me. Somebody marking up my walls all day long. He's right there with the newspaper. Oh. Okay. Can I get a cover unit to fifth and Broadway? I got a flag down about a uh, about a vandal I'm about to make a walk and stop. You can just see somebody this way. If you're from here, 
you have a better understanding of from from growing up in it you have a better understanding of what's going on as opposed to somebody who comes from somewhere else and and they're just looking for action this is anthony jackson the guy who just flagged down officer stone for help to arrest someone writing graffiti on his store and i mean when you grow up in an area you you have the potential to see what somebody's doing and go up and say hey uh young man uh you know this is what you're headed to with doing this this and this as opposed to the answer being going and picking him up. If you're from that community, you, you may know some people that know this person, or you can bring them to that parent or to that grandparent or to that uh, father figure or whatever the case may be and say, hey, this is what's going on. I decided to bring them right to your house. Uh, and that's kind of, to me, a more of a community approach as opposed to what's been happening, which is arrest you and hope that the incarceration process is gonna allow you uh, to restore and come out a better person, why don't we stop it before you even get to that point? And I think part of that is what's being done in the community. And I think the best people to do something in or for their community are people that are of that community. What Jackson just described is the archetypical version of community policing. It's almost a 1950s Mayberry-esque picture where Officer Miller tells little Johnny to straighten up or else he'll tell his grandma. It's unclear if this type of policing ever really existed, especially in communities of color. But the idea of the friendly neighborhood officer is often cited as a reason why police living locally can be beneficial. I don't think every police officer maybe should be uh, or should have to be necessarily from the community, but certainly if there's a certain amount of them, even when you have things that happen where, where we have all of this the confusion behind whether police are wrongfully uh, shooting people and that kind of thing. If there were more community officers involved, I think that that would l at least lessen the likelihood of an officer going out and wrongfully attacking or shooting somebody. There's not really any data on whether officers who are from a particular city are more or less likely to shoot a suspect. But Allen says it's not about numbers. Perception is reality to people who are being victimized. They don't care about statistics. They only are concerned about what they perceive to be when they're victims. Allen admits residency requirements don't help because officers all cluster their homes in one area of the city, creating a sort of safety bubble that doesn't connect them to most of the residents they serve. Still, he says racial representation is key to building trust. And that's one of the ideas behind residency requirements, that they can at least help create a police force as diverse as the citizens of the city they patrol. However, Andrew Flowers from 538.com looked at the numbers and found out that might not be happening. Going into this study, me and the co-author thought, hey, I assume that this has a positive effect on police diversity. So it was a little surprising uh, that the data didn't back it up. Flowers analyzed the 75 largest police departments in the U.S. to see whether those with residency requirements had a more racially representative police force. Meaning, for example, if your city's population was 40% black and 30% Asian, the police force would mirror those same numbers, 40% black and 30% Asian. So against all conventional wisdom, they found that police departments that required officers to live in the city they patrol 
actually had less diverse police forces. One of the things we found is diversity does help. It seems like there is a, a correlation between the more diverse a police department is, uh, there's a reduction in, in police misconduct, and there's more trust uh, from the community t- towards the police force. Flower's study found that having that diversity on the police force creates a kind of institutional change. The culture changes, right? It becomes less insular. It's open to community feedback, etc. So we, we found lots of researchers who had documented this relationship between diversity and better police community relations. But what we weren't able to find is research that proved that residency requirements were a way to get that diversity. Like any good statistician, Flowers is careful to distinguish between correlation and causation. He thinks the diversity issues existed before the residency requirements. So the rules didn't cause a lack of diversity, but those requirements also didn't solve the problem or reduce the distrust. That's likely one reason that Black Lives Matter and the growing movement for police reform across the country are not prioritizing residency requirements as part of their call for change. So what can police departments do to get that diverse police force, which is clearly an asset? Flowers, along with everyone else I spoke to for this story, said the real key is recruitment. Okay, good afternoon, everybody. All right, welcome to OPD's fourth annual open house. Thank you for coming. I'm Sean Wen. I'm the chief of the Oakland Police Department. And I would real quick it's a like sunny to spring afternoon, and the Oakland police are hosting their annual open house street fair. So uh, hiring locally is one of the priorities here in the police department. We've made some, some strides at that. Uh, but uh, I think that if you want to attract people to come to uh, your department, you have to have a good relationship with them. So uh, working with the community, having events like this, all those things help with local recruiting. Chief Wendt has gotten a lot of credit since taking over a beleaguered OPD, working to rebuild the department's reputation as fair and transparent. But recruitment of Oaklanders, or of any people of color for that matter, is still a major hurdle. I mean, in a lot of the, the, uh, the communities that we would, we would want to recruit from, um, young people in, in the, don't necessarily want to become police officers. We're trying to get uh, um, Spanish speakers, Chinese speakers, right, so we can make sure we're providing adequate service in those communities. But the largest ethnic group that we get of, of Oakland resident applicants are still white males, right? So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a challenge uh, to, to meet all the various priorities that we have. Oakland Police Sergeant Mildred Oliver is at a table promoting the Police Activities League and the Explorers Program. Both are efforts to expose children to police officers and what they do, in hopes that one day some of those homegrown kids might want to join the force. We are really truly trying to recruit an agency that's being run by the people for the people of Oakland. Oliver has been a cop for 18 years. She's born and raised here and is part of that 9% of the force that lives in the city. I'm not saying that only Oaklanders can understand Oaklanders, but it gives us more credibility as a department when we can say that we go out in the community and recruit and we grow our own. Oakland used to have a residency requirement, but in 1974, California voters amended the state's constitution, making the geographic restrictions illegal. All of a sudden, cities and counties had to allow their employees to live wherever they wanted. Today, some of Oakland's officers live more than 100 miles away. 
I wanted to ask Officer Stone, Oakland born and raised, how he felt about law enforcement commuting in from the suburbs or further patrolling his hometown. Stone is also black and understands the racial dynamics at play. So I was really surprised when he told me that the city of Oakland is no longer where he calls home. I do not live here anymore. Okay. Moved out. I got tired of seeing people that uh, I've arrested at my house, in front of my house. Okay. Gets, now that I have a wife, I have three kids. Mm -hmm. It's just, I don't want to see those guys. I don't want them, I don't want there to be any trail back to my home where I sleep. Stone isn't the only cop who told me he doesn't like encountering people he arrested out on the street. I've been followed home before. It's just, it's a little frightening. And as soon as my wife and I, we were able to, to get everything straight as far as finances, we got out. So like more than 90% of his colleagues, Stone left the city. First, we moved to Dublin. By Google Maps, Dublin is about 23 miles away from the Oakland Police Department's headquarters. In rush hour traffic, the drive could take an hour. We lived in Dublin for four years, and then we found a really nice place in Walnut Creek. Walnut Creek is one of those places Bay Area people use as shorthand for the burbs. And we've been there for two and a half years now. Um, so, uh, my neighborhood is purely residential, all houses, no drama, hardly any traffic. You know, it's, it's one of those streets where if you don't know where it is, it's kind of hard to drive down it, um, which is great because there's kids playing outside and everybody's got their kids on bicycles and there's, uh, it's just, a, it's, it's peaceful, which is good. Raising kids in a safe neighborhood with good schools is cited by many officers as to why they don't want to live in the inner city. Cost of living is also a big deal. In Oakland, the price of housing has risen so much in the last decade, it can be out of reach even for relatively well-paid police. Now, I don't mean to badmouth my city, but real is real. You know, I can't afford to move into a home in the Oakland Hills and send my, send my kids to you know, Joaquin Miller School or Montera, where there are even problems there. You know, it's got, got problems there too. Less so than in some of the other schools, but problems nonetheless that a Walnut Creek or a Pleasant Hill school doesn't really deal with. If police officers don't want to live in the city that they're working in, I think we have a very uh, crisis and, and uh, serious situation. Criminologist John Penny says the quality of life justification only exacerbates the divide between police and urban communities. First of all, if you're a police officer, you don't want to live here in the city. And the people that you are supposed to be protecting, then how do you think they feel about you in terms of your attitude towards the city? Would you want to go to a hospital where the doctors and nurses say, I would never use this hospital? Uh, I know that many police officers don't see themselves as being uh, attached to the problems of the city and, and they would want to come in, perform a task, leave and go back to their houses at night and safe. We want to be safe as well. So we want them to live here, to share our uh, way of life. But despite calls for more local hiring, there's really no real movement to overturn California's state law banning residency requirements. 
That's just fine with Officer Stone. It's a silly rule to say you must live in Oakland or you must live in San Francisco to be a San Francisco police officer or you must live in Concord to be a Concord police officer. Why? Because if I move outside the city limits, I won't be able to do this job as, as effectively as somebody who lives within the city limits. That's crap. If that, if that would have been a stipulation when I was hired, I wouldn't be here. I'd be working for some place that didn't have that rule. And they'd have lost out on a good guy. And that, in a way, is what it comes down to. Would Oakland's police department be better off with Officer Stone or without him? He's black. Where does that factor in? Or is it simply important that he's a good man and a good cop? For Making Contact, I'm Andrew Stelzer in Oakland. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. This program was based on a piece that originally aired on the podcast Life of the Law. Check out our website at radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcasts, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Jasmine Lopez, Quan Booth, and Andrew Stelzer. I'm Laura Flynn. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.